You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is David Roark, the producer of the podcast. I'll be filling in for Josh Patterson while he's away on sabbatical. On today's episode, special guest Brian Fisher of the Human Coalition will have a discussion with Matt Chandler and me about abortion and how we are making progress on this issue in America. Then we'll share a story about life and adoption from one of our ministers at the village, Ashley Rose. This is David Roark and Matt Chandler. We are joined with Brian Fisher, the co-founder and president of the Human Coalition. Brian, um, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, before we kind of jump into the conversation, we just tell us a little bit about Human Coalition, what you guys do, what you're about, uh, maybe a little history. Sure. Human Coalition is a nonprofit based in Dallas, Texas, but we have about 106 employees scattered around the country. And our mission is to end abortion through ministering to what are called abortion-determined women, women who have primarily been abandoned, uh, thrown aside by men and their families and who are pregnant and in extremely difficult circumstances. There's 1.85 million internet searches a month in the United States for abortion terms, and so that's our mission field. We go find them online and we bring them into a system of care which is designed to care for them and their families long-term and rescue the child. And by God's grace, uh, we've rescued over 5,300 children from abortion-determined situations and are seeing the gospel applied and transforming lives all over the country. That's great. And I'm excited about what you guys are doing. And I'm excited about our church being more involved in, in that yeah. partnership growing with Human Coalition. Well, I, I think the thing to note that I, I think has always drawn us to what, what you guys are doing, Brian, is it? it really is, even if you kind of just rewind the, you know, the, the digital tape here for a second, you're, you're hearing, hey, this is a ministry to women. Um, this isn't just save the baby. So the baby's made in the image of God, but the woman who's in these really distressful situations is kind of um, like an evil murderer, but but rather it's, hey, how do we minister to this woman and in so doing save the, this child? And I, I think that's the thing that's compelling for me, a more robust view of life. Um, so yes and amen, I never want to kind of deter in any way those who are passionate about saving the unborn. Uh, I think time and energy and money and hope and prayer and legislation and all of that is important and should be with, with the utmost seriousness um, and, and I would even say shrewdness um, should be approached and um, tackled. But but there's something compelling in my own heart and I think something that really ties us back to um, how Jesus does ministry. When you're looking at this woman and you're going, how can we serve her, help her, come alongside of her and and help her see that there are other options and it's not an option that she has to make and then um, do all alone with no support, no encouragement, no one coming alongside of her. But there, but there is there is a way um, for you to, to choose life and then to have support and care and encouragement and training and all that you'll need um, to flourish as a human being. Yeah. And Brian, you're you're super close to this. You're obviously this is your day to day, and I think I would like to just kind of start this conversation with. I think for those just the normal average Christian looking at the news, looking at the political climate, thinking about this issue of abortion, 
wondering what's going to happen with legislation, all these things. There seems to be a negative narrative um, about this issue. Um, it's, it, it seems – if maybe you don't know any statistics or anything like that as, as the average person, but it seems as if – Things are going the wrong direction, but you know I've heard you talk about this. But you, you seem to think, and, and stats seem to show that that that's not actually necessarily true, and, and that there's this other narrative. Can you talk about that sort of this this progress that we're actually making with this issue? Sure, the negative narrative is intentional. The abortion industry propagates that that narrative because it keeps those of us who love life uh, quiet. Uh, the church's silence on abortion over the last 40 or 50 years has predominantly been because of both fear and ignorance, and those things are propagated through through the media, and yet uh, are really unnecessary. The gospel calls us to protect and defend innocent life, and so the act of engaging in the abortion holocaust in order to end it is gospel work and is, in many cases, joyful work. It's hard work. It's difficult work. We're dealing with broke and broken primarily single moms. And so there's a lot of baggage and there's a lot of heartache. But every time a child is rescued from abortion and a woman is rescued from making that decision, you see the transformative power of the Holy Spirit at work. And abortion numbers have been coming down for 15 years. Uh, Here in Texas, the numbers just came out. They're down again. Texas is leading the charge in terms of reducing abortion numbers in our state, and that's happening across the country. We've just had an election uh, where the entire administration is being transformed before our very eyes in the next 30 days to one that was ardently pro-abortion to one that is ardently about the business of protecting human life. That's because the culture – over time is finding abortion morally reprehensible and is making great gains and saying, look, we need to protect women and children. We need to be a just society. We need to be a culture that values preborn children and their moms equally, and we need to value them as much as we value anyone else, regardless of race, regardless of circumstance, regardless of the circumstances of conception. And so I think we have reason to be unbelievably hopeful and optimistic. I do believe we'll see legalized abortion ended in this country in my lifetime. And I don't think that's because it's just some hopeful platitude. I think the data, uh, the results that Human Coalition and many other pro-life organizations are seeing uh, point to that as well now as uh, what's happening politically. Yeah, I I think that um – you're talking about legislation there and it comes to this issue of abortion and then you know there's what human coalition is doing and there's other organizations and ministries doing things as well can you talk about I think that when we when we think about our engagement with this issue of abortion, we go straight to to politics. We go straight to legislation. I think as Christians, but I've heard you talk about that that may not necessarily always be the best way, or it is a way, but not the way. And that in some ways, politics is downstream from culture rather than the other way around. Um, what does that mean for the way we think about legislation on this issue? I think laws follow culture. I don't think laws ever lead culture. I think they always lag culture. So we have patterned our work after Wilberforce, who was so involved with the effort to end slavery in the Western world. And he was a politician, and so he worked through the political system for 30 years and introduced legislation and was defeated dozens and dozens of times before slavery was made illegal in Britain. But while he was engaged politically – 
he was deeply engaged culturally yeah. through education, through transformation, through slave rescue, through attempting to work uh, through other countries to create equal rights for all human beings. And so England went from a culture that found slavery to be completely acceptable to finding it to be completely reprehensible in one generation because of one man and his efforts with uh, a coalition that he built. And so this is where I think the church is so powerful. Our strongest church relationship nationwide is the village church because Matt's platform uh, includes ending abortion as part of it. And in my view, you guys are leading the way in terms of the church work. If other churches and congregations follow that lead and recognize that abortion, ending abortion is an obligation of the church, it's a joyful obligation of the church, and is done through a winsome, graceful, educational, transformative process, uh, we'll see abortion ended in the culture – and then the laws will naturally follow that process. That's why I'm – you know, people ask me, you know, do you want to see Roe v. Wade overturned? Well, yes, although that wouldn't end abortion. That would just return the rights to the states. But it would be a massive sign that the culture has in fact been transformed and that transformation happens through the work of the church. So let, let me ask this because I think, I think people who are listening to this – I think they'll be fired up at the things we're talking about here, but but what I've learned, even as I've traveled and talked with other pastors, and to, there seems to be a disjoint in kind of the practicalities of what this means. So when you say, man, if the church would get involved, if the church would um, – so in, in some sense, you're talking about organizations and nonprofits, and then in another sense, you're talking about um, Christians in, in covenant with one another in local contexts um, – being actively a part of the kingdom of God. And so can you talk a little bit about when we're talking about the church being involved, can, can you give maybe three or four, like, this is what I mean by that. So if, if you're a pastor listening to this podcast, what would you say to that pastor? If you're um, a parishioner, you're just a, a lay guy, man, you, you're a mortgage broker and man, you love the Lord and you love the word of God and you're passionate about this and you're, you're actively involved in your church. You led a home group, maybe you're on the parking team. Um, what, what are things for that guy or gal? And then what are things for church leadership to consider when we're talking about the church being involved on this front? So we look at it as church institutional and church universal, right? The institution of the church, congregations, and then the church universal, which is is Christians at large. My personal viewpoint is that the greatest transformation happens through the church institutional. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, do you do both bottom-up and top-down yeah. work with the churches, right? And the answer is both. But the fastest, most effective way to see transformation happen through the churches is if the head pastor and the elders say this is something that we're going to be committed to because we all – we follow our pastoral lead, right? We, we, we are trained and biblically we are to follow – the headship of our um, our church leadership. And so when it comes to the institution of the church, we always say the very first thing that any pastor or eldership can do is to gracefully educate their congregations on the sanctity of human life and what abortion actually is. Uh, that usually starts a conversation, and that conversation bubbles up into other practical outlets of how a church can become involved. When Human Coalition first started its church division, you know, we designed this great program and it was 12 steps. You know, this is whole, this whole methodology and we realized quickly that that was an affront to churches because every church has their own personality and DNA yep. and their own motivations. And so instead we said, well, look, 
what if we assisted with education? What if we assisted with ideas of how specific congregations can get involved? One of the easiest ways a church can get involved is to offer post-abortive healing. One-third of congregations in this country are post-abortive men and women. Huge ministry opportunity, non-political, not particularly confrontational. Extending the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ to post-abortive populations is a marvelous way for churches to be involved. Beyond that, are there practical ways to provide assistance? There are churches with maternity homes. There are churches with poverty relief programs, drug and alcohol abuse, relationship counseling. All of those things have a part to play in the process of ending abortion and fit very naturally within how a church is already constructed. Education, post-abortive healing, tangible help, those three things are things that, frankly, almost any congregation can do fairly simply anywhere in the country. Yeah, let me – and so I don't want to – I do want to say this. If you're a pastor listening to this, I, I think one of the things I hear from pastors most often is that in the desire to see millennials become Christians or in the desire to see uh, maybe not even millennials but just people to come to know Christ, that the, the I, it's not uncommon for me to hear. I, I just don't want to get into political issues. And um, so when I, I, I totally understand that kind of uneasiness you're, you're feeling, but I, I just want to gently press that this is certainly not a political issue. It is an issue of the Imago Dei and what it means to be human and what human flourishing looks like and 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 so for us to not step into this space graciously and yet prophetically uh, is in a very real way taking a back seat um, and and not using really the voice God gave you um, to participate in what God is actively doing in the world and I I, I remember the first year I preached um, a specific sermon on this issue I braced for what I thought would be just in a you know just a tsunami of negative emails and people leaving the church and women enraged with me and i i just couldn't believe that it was actually the opposite that took place and that people who had had abortions came forward and uh, were able to lament for the first time in their lives what they had done and then seek um, healing from that. And and then we begin to see this kind of growing understanding of life in the Imago Dei, not just on this issue, but on all sorts of other issues now that make us a church that that's far more healthy in regards to understanding human flourishing and what God is up to uh, in our day and age. And and we don't want to be, Pastor, you, you don't want to be, and I'm not trying to put weight on you other than just trying to gently put the truth out there. You don't want to be the guy that 40 years from now, um, did you don't want to be Schindler at the end of Schindler's list going, this car, this car could have been five more people, you know, this, this ring, this ring could have been two more people. And, and so we, I, I certainly there's a way to approach this subject that's alienating and um, a, a way to not do it. So you don't want to be prophetic w- without being generous and kind and compassionate. But I, but I, I want to encourage you not to hide behind that. I don't want to get involved in politics. And it, and every sermon I've ever preached on this issue, I have started this that sermon with this is not a political issue for us who are Christians. Now it's working itself out in the political sphere, but this is certainly not a political issue. This is a Bible issue. This is a how God designed the universe issue. And this is a justice issue. Yeah. And I would just add to to Brian's point about, you know, sort of 
legislation and laws following culture. I think a great example that we see of this is, is same-sex marriage. And obviously that that is an issue that is kind of went the opposite direction than I think we would line up with as Christians. But we can see how that particular issue you started to see more gay people in movies. You started to see songs about this issue. You started to see sort of a shift in popular culture at large until eventually laws and legislation followed. So I think that that's just like a, an easy one to think about um, and to consider of, of the way that that worked. And again, I don't think it negates you know, trying to push for legislation that would, would end yeah. this or change this, but I think it, it gives you a better, more well-rounded picture of how it actually works well, if you're thinking, a lot of times. If you're thinking back to Wilberforce, I mean, you can't discount Hannah Moore and, and some of the, like Hannah was writing stories and plays and it, it's that same. She was painting this picture uh, of human flourishing that that really affected. So if you haven't read um, Karen Swallow Pryor's book, Fierce Convictions on Hannah Moore, it's a beautiful mm-hmm. uh, biography on the role that Hannah played in that and literacy and all sorts of other cultural transformation via the pen of just a godly, ferocious woman who wanted to see God do something huge in her day, and they did it. Uh, I, I think it's so you're right. And when we talk about kind of the prevailing wind is that, oh my gosh, we're, we, all is lost. We're doing, and I, man, I'm just not, I just can't, I can't get my feet there. I just know too many 20 somethings. I know too many people who um, are really serious uh, about seeing the kingdom of God, about seeing humanity flourish according to the scriptures um, in key positions all over the domains of society. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about what, what's to come in the next 10, 15, 20 years. I think we've ever reason to be optimistic. I mean, we, we do serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who was victorious at the cross. So, um, we live in a pessimistic culture yeah. that is saturated with news and the news that we are delivered is intentionally negative because it sells advertising. Yeah. There's a whole commerce uh, structure behind that. However, uh, we forget that the Holy Spirit is working in and through us broken vessels to achieve the kingdom of God and to continue to grow and manifest itself. And every time I get a picture of a newborn baby that was going to be aborted and was instead delivered and a joyous mom who eight months ago thought her life was over and now sees tremendous blessing and opportunity for herself and a church community surround her saying, we're going to love you long term. I am reminded that we serve a victorious risen king. And that king is still very much at work, even though he doesn't make the news. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I think one of the ways that, you know, um, we, we sort of carry that is by having a full ethic of human life. You know, I, I think we were alluding to this earlier in regard to mothers, but I think in many ways, you know, the church, specifically the Catholic church is, has been seen as an entity or institution that has fought for the unborn. But I think Christians a lot of times have not focused on other life sort of Imago day issues. Do yeah. you think – and I know that we're getting this a lot right now in regard to the election and things like that. You know, has the church lost its credibility? But do you think that that has – do you think in regard to abortion, our credibility and witness on this issue has been affected by the fact that in some ways we haven't had that consistent ethic of life? And when it comes to other issues of whether immigration, whether it be poverty, you know, other life issues of real people. How can we gain credibility might be yeah. a better question because, again, I was hoping this would be a more optimistic conversation, not a negative one. Um, but how, how can we have a fuller ethic of, of human life? Well, I've been studying 
uh, the theology of life in the Bible, and I'm I'm a business guy, not a theologian, but I'm becoming more and more convinced that the structure of the Ten Commandments, the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, have embedded in them a a prioritization that if you look at the structure of the Ten Commandments, the first four, our relationship with God, number five, our relationship in family, and then the other five, our relationship in community, and the very first commandment in relation to community is thou shalt not kill. The positive of that is protect human life. And I've been wrestling with uh, what does that mean for the institution of the church's engagement in ending abortion? Are we structured as the institution of the church to make disciples and abide by God's moral prioritization that he has given us? As I read scripture, he has an extremely high view of the value of human life. Uh, We are not allowed to take that innocent life. Ecclesiastes makes it clear that that's not our role, and and our complement to that is then we are to protect and defend human life. So I've had to look at my own Christian worldview and say, does my time, energy, resources align ministerially with what God has given us in Scripture? So I am all about child poverty relief. That's been an issue that has been very near and dear to my heart. That is rescuing human lives. I'm all about protecting and preserving marriage. That's all about protecting, you know, the seventh, you know, marriage. Do I view the rescuing of human life as vitally important as God does? And am I aligned with that? Is my church aligned with that? Is the church community at large aligned with that? It's interesting because the entire pro-life movement is is maybe $600 million a year being donated into it, which sounds like a lot of money, but just to put it in context, the United Way is $4 billion. Yeah. So one nonprofit is six times as large as the entire movement to end abortion. I look at that and I say that indicates that we as Christians are not prioritizing yeah. the greatest Holocaust in human history like God does. Now, that's just one indicator, and it's just financial, but I think our finances flow out of our theological perspectives and our doctrine and our worldview. And so I look at that and say, how do we winsomely, gracefully, candidly educate ourselves in the church to align with God's moral priority? And it appears to me as if evangelism and discipleship making is central to the gospel, but protecting and defending innocent bodies, human lives, is a, is the primary physical manifestation of that work. And that to me, even as somebody who's full-time in the pro-life movement, I've had to step back and personally assess yeah. myself and say, am I in line with that with that worldview? Yeah, and so I'm, I mean, I'll just piggyback off of it. I, uh, it. It's funny to me, this very question is so controversial. I mean, even this conversation, I, mean, I just had a random tweet I sent out about what I thought are just really kind of clear commands in the scriptures. And we're super surprised at uh, how aggressive people were against what I was saying, which was basically care for the poor, love the immigrant, and and fight for diversity. And and I mean, I like I just couldn't believe that how how nasty that thing got. So I I, I want to be careful with this idea of credibility. I think with the lost world, we're never going to have credibility. It, it doesn't matter what you do. So if we're talking about credibility, like are we being fully obedient to what the Lord has for us? That that's the conversation I want to have um, because I think sort of that a faithful lot, witness, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or even I love John Tyson's language. He's a pastor uh, Trinity Grace in uh, Manhattan, but he, um, he 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 talks about a creative minority. 
um, and what it means to be a creative creative minority um, and and the power of a creative minority and 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 to to get rid of some of the I want to be careful and gracious here, but to get rid of some of the cotton candy evangelicalism um, is probably going to be a good thing for all of these issues um, where, where, where we're far more interested in drawing a crowd um, than we are making a difference and, and really being a part of what God's heart is in regards to the kingdom of God moving forward, then, then, I, then I think we lack credibility internally, right? The, the, the people of God ourselves lack credibility if we're not fully surrendered to the Lord. If, if what we've got is this half-hearted, kind of placid, you know, Jesus is great as long as he doesn't ask me to do anything that, that inconveniences me. Well, I mean, I, at that point, I think your faith has lost credibility, right? Your, your personal faith. But, but where, where the, the people of God give themselves over to obedience rooted in faith into difficult spaces. And that means spaces around race, spaces around sex, spaces around this issue. So, I mean, it, that's, the, that's the move that, that I think gives the gospel credibility in our own hearts as well as those genuine seekers who are looking in. And all the while we'll be getting negative press. So. Absolutely. Just to kind of end this conversation, and, and you alluded to this earlier, Brian, but – Let's just – I want to hear from both of you guys. So do you believe – and maybe the better question is why do you believe so strongly um, and sort of positively that, that abortion will end in your, your lifetime? You, you mentioned that. I'm curious to you just – to elaborate on that. Why do you, do you believe that? Well, I have anecdotal evidence and then statistical evidence. Anecdotally, um, what Matt is alluding to here, which I think is is a word that's been – in my head and heart for six months is courage. Uh, I think the village and like-minded churches are growing in their influence and in their saltiness and in their being light because of the courage to deal winsomely and compassionately with the difficult issues. Abortion, in my mind, is chief among them. That is beginning to populate through Matt's leadership, through Tony Evans' leadership, through Ted Kitchens, through other frankly, Southern pastors who have decided that God has called them to be an agent in ending abortion, and it's beginning to populate. As I as I travel the country, I can't tell you how many times this year I've had men come up to me and say, I think God is calling me to be involved in the effort to end abortion. If you ask any woman who has been involved in this effort for 40 years, she will tell you, "We where are the men? Where are the men? This has somehow become a, men, a women's issue, even in the church. And that tide is turning. The fact that that tide is turning gives me anecdotal, very substantial hope that we're on the precipice of something very exciting because men in leadership at churches, men in leadership in business, men in leadership in their communities, God is calling them through the Holy Spirit to be involved. And and I'm seeing evidence of that all over the place. I mean, Human Coalition was started by guys. It's a very odd pro-life nonprofit because most of them are run by women. Statistically, though, uh, the polling indicates that uh, younger generations are polling more pro-life. I think we're beginning to see that turn politically. There have been hundreds of laws passed at state legislations that are pro-life laws over the last five years. It's been the most active pro-life successful generation in history in terms of political involvement. And the abortion numbers continue to decline. I think America as a whole is waking up and saying in 1973 we made a colossal mistake – 
men are recognizing that we I, – I think Christian men are responsible for the legalization of abortion and therefore we're responsible for leading the charge to end it and they're getting that. And the numbers themselves are indicating that this is – we are one long sustained push away from ending legalized abortion in this country and I, I think the momentum is picking up. And that's a, that's a component of me traveling around the country and seeing it happen and us collecting data and statistics from all over the country that point to that reality. And the only thing I would add to that, because yes and amen to every bit of that, that science is literally on our side. And so every time they figure out how to get a better look at that baby in the womb with the 3D imaging and I mean, every time there's a step where we're able to measure brain waves in the womb, where we're able to see, are the kidneys functioning right now? Are the, you know, what, what's going on in the lungs right here? What's a, every time there's a breakthrough in that area, it supports the, the pro-life movement. So you, you either have to accept science for what it is. Or, or you've got to sever your conscience, and um, and and so uh, again, every time they, when our Roe v. Wade was passed, that there was no ability to look at your baby in the womb, there was no ability to see it smile. I mean, that three D imaging where you're watching your baby smile, it, I mean that that's a game changer in and of itself. It removes the it from the idea. It makes it a him. It makes it a her, and the it is gone because it's easy to get rid of a clump of cells. Right, it's harder to argue. Yeah, there's a heartbeat. Yeah, it's got its own DNA. Yeah, it's got its own blood type. Yeah, it looks like it's dreaming. Yes, it recoils from pain, but I'm still going to kill it. I mean, it just gets harder the more science kind of shows us. No, no, no. This is a legitimate human being. Yeah, it it really is exciting to see. You know, from science to stats to just sort of what you're feeling in the relationships that you guys have a human coalition to just sort of see all these things adding up to really be a picture of a different narrative than I think that we, we, we normally just agree with or, or see in our day-to-day lives. So as we think about our role as the church in the fight against abortion, standing up for the unborn and caring for mothers who find themselves in these difficult, difficult situations, the story of Ashley Rose, a minister at our flower mound campus is a testament to God's faithfulness and his grace. When I was 16, I took a pregnancy test between second and third period. The stick came back positive, and I was terrified. I had to walk out in the halls and be the same happy, achieving girl that I always was. But I was different. I was scared. I was alone. I felt like all I could do was stand. And even that was hard. I knew it was a problem. I needed to fix the problem. And I knew what that meant. My name is Ashley Rose, and this is my story. I think to understand why I felt the way I did, you have to go back a little. You have to see that I was the daughter of a single dad. My mom had died about five years before. So I didn't really, I didn't have anyone. And so all I had was my accomplishments. I'd spent the majority of my high school life achieving great grades, class president. 
I was popular. I was well-liked. And I felt like my dad was proud of me. I had a great boyfriend. I had the perfect high school life. Until I got pregnant. So, what I need to do, I had to get rid of it. And so I researched abortion. I called Planned Parenthood. I made appointments. They would come and they would go. And I would call another clinic and they offered another solution such as oral abortion. And that appointment would come and it would go. But I lived in Oregon at the time and the abortion laws up there are pretty crazy. And actually, there's no time limit. So I knew that I had until I was about 35 weeks pregnant to decide. When I was about six months pregnant, I started attending a youth group. I didn't know it, but the Lord was about to change my life. The youth pastor's name was Josh, and his wife's name was Julie. I had no idea how, just what a big part of my life they would become. I went to the group a couple times. I wasn't sure why I was going back. I I would say I considered myself a Christian. I wanted to be good, but my faith was wrapped up in morality and not necessarily a relationship with Jesus. But the third week into youth group, Julie pulled me aside and she said, I know you're pregnant. I have never felt more seen and terrified in my life. Somebody knew I was found out. The secret that I had spent all of my time and energy to conceal, it was out there. But she didn't look at me with condemnation in her eyes. She didn't see me how I saw myself, dirty and shameful. She just offered me love. And she told me about the love of Jesus. And she just so graciously and sweetly and kindly told me things about the Lord. That He was Redeemer and that he was faithful, and that he did not look at me as ugly and disgusting, and just all of these things that I was for sure that I was, that I was the 16-year-old slut. And that's not how Jesus saw me. After our conversation, I went home, knowing that I needed to tell my dad. This was going to be the worst part. I had spent so long trying to get him to love me. And it was all going to come crashing down. But the Lord is so faithful. When I did tell my dad, he responded how I expected. He was really angry and confused, and he didn't understand how his honor roll daughter could possibly get herself in this situation. A few weeks later, I moved out of my dad's house. It was a little hostile, and it was just better for me. I moved in with Josh and Julie, and they walked me through my options. Suddenly, abortion wasn't an option, not because it was the good and right thing to do and because I wanted their approval or I wanted them to look at me as good, but because this child was a gift that the Lord had given to me to steward. And maybe that stewardship was going to look different than I expected. At about seven months pregnant, I decided to go through the adoption process. By this time, I told my friends, and they were relatively supportive, about as much as the average 16- and 17-year-old could be. They were willing to be there for me, but they were glad it wasn't them. We decided to research types of adoption. So, as true millennials, we Googled. We Googled types of families. So we found a fun, young 
family, married a couple of years, but couldn't have kiddos. We found a single professional who just never found time to get married, but whom really wanted kids. We found the trendy Oregon gay couple. And then we found a couple who really cared about open adoption. I had never heard about open adoption. I had never really even considered adoption or knew what adoption was about. I think I knew a kid in third grade who was adopted, but that was about how real adoption was for me. So Julie and I, we met with a woman through an organization called Open Adoption and Family Services out of Portland, Oregon, and she talked to me about open adoption. She explained that open adoption was different. It was about a relationship. It was about a group of people loving a child and wanting what was best for them. To me, this seemed like the best case. At this point, the Lord had completely changed my heart and how I viewed my baby. I loved my baby. My baby was a life growing inside of me. He liked to be up at midnight kicking me, and he was my best friend during this season. When I was scared and felt alone, I would pray to the Lord and I would talk to this little tiny thing growing inside of me. So at this point, I knew that I needed to steward this gift from the Lord well. And I wanted to give him a home, a mom, and a dad who loved Jesus and were already praying for him before they even knew him. So the adoption process started. I looked through many families and pros and cons and prayed and talked with Josh and Julie, and then it became clear. I met a family. They were so great. The first time we met, we went to lunch. It was supposed to be an hour, but we ended up talking for five hours. They were high school sweethearts, and they loved each other so much. They had another daughter, and the way they talked about her was so incredible. They loved her in the way that I wanted my dad to love me unconditionally. They were proud of her. Even in her small toddler milestones, they were so proud. I wanted that for my son. So the adoption process started. They came with me to doctor's appointments. They would call me and ask me how I was. I would call them and ask them how they were. They sent me pictures of the nursery that they were preparing. They told me every day how grateful they were for me. I didn't feel shame anymore. I felt free. I felt free because I'd been forgiven by Jesus. And I felt free because I was walking in his plan. And this was always part of his plan. Me getting pregnant wasn't a surprise to him. And I could see that. And that felt really great. So I had my son in January. It was a really crazy day. His adoptive parents were coming down from Portland in the snow when they came to the hospital and held their son for the first time. It was an incredible thing to watch. I felt a peace that I have never felt before and that is unexplainable. I watched the way they fed him I watched the way they looked at each other, and I knew. I knew that this was the Lord's plan all along. Adoption isn't easy. 
and I would never pretend that it is. This happened about nine years ago, and from then to now, there are seasons where I'm sad, and I wonder what it would be like if I was his parent. There are seasons where I find it difficult to stay in communication because it's hard, but it's always worth it. I love that he knows that there is so many people who love him. I love that when he is tucked in at night, there is a mom and a dad who love him. And I love that when he asks about me, they can say the same. That your birth mother loved you so much that she brought you to us. There isn't any condemnation in that story. There's just a real, tangible vision of the gospel. And I love that. I love that that's part of his story. I love that when I tell this story to him when he's older, that I will just get to testify to the Lord and that he is healer and he is comforter and he is refuge. And I'm excited to share that with him. And when he grows up and he tells his story, I pray that he says the same thing. But it's really easy 10 years later to tell the story. So, dear pregnant, scared woman, the Lord is faithful and he loves you. And I know you feel You feel a lot of things, some of which you don't even know how to feel. But it's still true. The Lord is faithful, and He wants to hear from you. So don't be scared, because there's no reason to be. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Culture Matters. If there's anything you heard us talk about on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website at thevillagechurch.net. Just look at the episode descriptions on our podcast page. On our next episode, we will have a special Christmas episode with a variety of guests. If you have any questions, let us know on social media using the hashtag AskTVC. God bless.